You are listening to Seminars at Hadley. This seminar is Extreme Weather and NASA, presented by Kristen Weaver, moderated by Larry Muffet. Welcome to Seminars at Hadley. My name is Larry Muffet. I'm a member of Hadley's seminars team. I work in curricular affairs, and I'm the leader of Hadley's Veterans Initiative. Today's seminar topic is Extreme Weather, Studying the Impact of Water with NASA and Hadley. Your presenter is Kristen Weaver. Kristen is an outreach specialist for the Global Precipitation Measurement Satellite Mission based out of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She is also Deputy Coordinator for Globe Observer, a project aiming to extend the long-standing educational citizen science program, global learning and observations to benefit the environment, to non-school-based audiences. Prior to her work with NASA, Kristen taught middle school science for eight years in both Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland and Denver Public Schools in Colorado with a primary focus in earth science. She holds an MA in education and a BS in computer science and psychology from the University of Denver. Today, on a very timely note, Kristen is going to discuss the crucial work NASA is undertaking to track weather extremes as well as manage our precious water resources. Now, let me welcome Kristen and we'll get underway. Kristen, welcome and we look forward to your presentation on this, as it turns out, very timely topic. Yes, indeed, and um, I'm, so I'm happy to be here today. I will say that this is, um, I am very used to relying on my, my NASA visuals. I'm going to do the best job I can of describing things, but uh, I, I, I think for, for those of us who rely on our vision a lot, it's a, it's a different audience for me, so I hope you will bear with me as I'm trying to explain science in words when I usually rely on pictures a great deal more. Um, so let's see here. So the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission satellite was launched in February of 2014. Uh, it was, it's a joint mission between NASA and JAXA, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. So we, uh, we built, the, the, the satellite was built here uh, at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. It was one of the, uh, the biggest satellites that we built here at Goddard. Uh, it barely fit into some of the testing chambers, actually. Uh, and then the instruments, uh, the, the dual precipitation radar, which I'll talk about a little bit later, was built uh, by uh, Japan and built in Japan by the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency. And then uh, the microwave imager was built by Ball Aerospace out in Colorado. And then they just assembled everything and put it all together here at Goddard uh, and then shipped it off to, uh, to, to uh, Tanigashima Island in Japan to launch. And it's, and it's a really fascinating, the data that we can get from it. I want to go back in time a little bit. The, the, some of the first weather photos taken from space were actually uh, from repurposed gun cameras or the, on, on early research rockets. So there's a really fascinating uh, book, Dreams, Hopes, Realities, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, the first 40 years, that has a lot of the early history of, of Goddard. And so uh, they, they, they took a bunch of these, these uh, reworking V2 and early sounding rockets uh, and were actually able to get some of the first images of clouds in the earth from space. And so, you know, compared to what we can get now, it's, it's fairly poor quality, but at the time it was pretty groundbreaking groundbreaking, excuse me. And so um, the, 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 the image I'm showing now is a montage image of a, of a number of different photographs taken, but you can see the span of the Earth and you can see the clouds, you can see some storms, and uh, it would have been pretty, pretty revolutionary to be able to get that information from above. 
And then, of course, NASA started to do um, some weather satellites. And so one of the first satellites that was actually dedicated to looking at weather was called TIROS. Uh, it's, uh, there was a whole series of them. It was stood for Television and Infrared Observation Satellites. Uh, and it was launched the, uh, in uh, 19, the 1960s, uh, so some of the first images from April of 1960s, and they're very grainy images compar comparatively. Uh, you know, we can take so much better images with our cell phone camera these days, but, but again, it was groundbreaking because they, they, this was among the first times that they'd been able to get, get any sort of these images from space. And one of the things when I'm talking to students is talking about the differences between satellites then and now. You know, in the in the early days, they were discovering a lot about um, some of the the, the uh, electromagnetic interference from uh, the the Earth's magnetic field. They were not as conscious of some of the uh, of some of the the, the, the electronics. Um, and so, uh, in the early days, they didn't use the special suits, the the what they call bunny suits, to protect the electronics from getting dust and hair and all sorts of those things. Also, the original satellites were a lot, a lot smaller. Um, so the the, the Tiro satellite that's in, in the left-hand image is just about, you know, maybe maybe two or three feet taller than a person. There's there's three men in the picture that that are working on the satellite, just in their look what look like just plain old street clothes, and um, the satellite's just a you know a couple feet taller than them. Whereas the GPM satellite is three or four times the height of a person. And in in a clean room nowadays, they they we, we understand that we don't want to get dust and dirt in the electronics that then we can't can't clean out once it's up in space so we do uh, uh, much much more precautions when I when I talk to students a lot they, they think that the the suits the these white protective suits that they, the the engineers wear are to protect the person but it's not at all that it's for protecting the satellite uh, from from us not the other way around uh, and the other thing that is um, that we, we NASA has been studying Earth as as I mentioned, you know, since basically the beginning of, of, of NASA as a space agency. And we have a number of different uh, satellites that are all observing different things from space. So the image I'm showing now is, uh, is the various Earth observing satellites that NASA has. And GPM is just one among many uh, using different sorts of instruments. One of my f favorite facts about the NASA Earth observing satellites is almost all of them use the electromagnetic spectrum directly to study the Earth, whether it's microwaves like GPM GPM does, or infrared, or visible light, or all those sorts of things. There's one exception to that. Uh, the GRACE satellites actually uh, use gravity to detect um, underwater water resources. So they can, as, as, they, as they circle around the Earth, they monitor very closely how far apart they are from each other. And so as they pass over mountains, for example, it changes the distance between the two satellites. And the other thing that can change the distance between them is something like water underground has a lot of mass. So we we can get a map of the gravitational field, the normal gravitational field on Earth, and then actually detect uh, some changes in the in the gravitational field, showing that that water may be. Uh, be being uh, taken out of groundwater, and, and we can actually detect those differences. Uh, but so most of these Earth-observing satellites are using some part of the electromagnetic spectrum, and that is true for GPM as well. 
Uh, and then uh, the, 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 uh, one of the other things that I that I always try to mention is back when they were building the first satellites, it was the, the teams building them were predominantly men and mostly white men. Nowadays, of course, it's a, it's a, a much more diverse group of people working on the satellite. The image I'm showing now is, is, is just a, a group of actually just a subset of the GPM flight project team. This was before I joined the mission, so I am not in there anywhere. But you can see, you know, we've got probably 50 to 100 people from all different backgrounds all working together to build the satellite and it really is all about teamwork in a lot of respects. Um, so I, I think uh, as I mentioned I usually rely a lot on videos and we have and, and, and visuals we have a lot of those um, as part of uh, part of you know my presentation which of course you may not be able to see but the links are all there for so for those of you who want to go back afterwards uh, the, the links are all within the presentation and you can um, go back afterwards and take a look at them. Uh, one of the things that's important about the GPM satellite is it actually has two different types of instruments. It has an active instrument that actually sends down radar pulses of microwaves to detect the precipitation and it also has a passive sensors that just take advantage of the, the, the electromagnetic energy in the microwave spectrum that's naturally given off by precipita precipitation. Uh, so we're actually using both active and passive systems to detect this information in this video getting the big picture talks a little bit about about how um, how that works so precipitation I mean precipitation is, is a very important thing to study uh, you, when when you're talking about I mean that is clearly demonstrated by the the massive amount of rain we are seeing that is coming out of Hurricane Harvey and affecting all those all those people in the in the Houston area I think they've said that that some of those areas have been getting you know 50 inches of rain which is just insane insane amounts of rain and so of course we care a lot about uh, precipitation and how much uh, how much it's raining whether we get too much rain as we as we are having as poor Houston is getting right now but also things about too, too little rain, drought situations, um, and it can cause you know, wonderful things, increases in agriculture with irrigation and things like that, but also, you know, problems. And so, uh, you know, our mission at, at NASA is, is, is a science mission. We study, we do research, but of course the data that we collect is useful for, for many other uh, different purposes. And I think one of the things that is that is key about studying rainfall is, you know, fresh water is 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 such a precious resource that if you look at a picture of the globe, you know, a lot of it's blue, but so much of that is, of course, mostly oceans and salt water, which is not really very readily accessible for human beings to use for our purposes, for drinking and, and agriculture and all those sorts of things. So. Um, there's a chart here that shows all the water on Earth and 99% of it is unusable by human beings in its form as salt water that unless you do expensive processes like and, and energy intensive processes like desalinization, only really about 1% of the water is actually going to be really usable and accessible to humans. And of that, you know, f uh, groundwater is actually most of that, um, that usable percentage. And so I mentioned the GRACE satellite that is looking at water underground, but of course, GPM is focused on precipitation. So the water that is coming in and uh, from from clouds and filling up lakes, rivers, um, and accessible to human beings in that way. And it's uh, just a very interesting to look at all the places that we have um, water besides the ones that we normally think of. You know. Uh, 
actually a fair bit is in the atmosphere, um, but in, in living things, um, but then also rivers, swamps, and the things we normally think of. But soil moisture is another one that actually we don't realize that a, a fairly good chunk of Earth's water is actually stored in soil moisture. Um, and there's another satellite that NASA has, the Soil Moisture Active Passive Mission, that actually looks at that. So, you know, as you see, all of these things are interconnected. So while I work uh, for this particular satellite mission, uh, you, you found, find always that there are connections between different types of data and that really you can't just study one thing thing, you have to be studying a lot of the connected things to be able to get the full picture. Uh, and so that's, that's actually one of the things that I, that I find quite exciting in, in, in being here as a, you know, my background in education is that I'm always learning something new myself. So um, I, I, it, I always see these connections because there are people studying all these different things. It's like, oh, that, you know, that, that relates to something else that I learned about. So if we think about our water on Earth, I've just got a few different ways of looking at that. Right, uh, all the different ways we have, uh, we, the, where the different places that water is found on Earth. Of course, you know, 97, 96.5, 97% of the Earth's ocean, of the Earth's water is in oceans. You know, 1.7 is is ice caps, glaciers, and and permanent snow. Then we get uh, groundwater, another 1.7% or so. And so that's you know the, now, and then we're getting into just these really small small amounts. And so the part of uh, of of water that we're studying with GPM is that the atmospheric water, which is just 0.001% of the total water on Earth. So although it's very important to us and certainly rain is very relevant, um, it is actually not very much of the Earth's water. Okay, so actually this might be a good spot that I'll talk a little bit next about. So that's kind of the setting of why this is important because water matters so much. Um, and next I'm going to get into wh why, we, why we do this from satellites, but I can pause here if anybody has, has some questions. Thanks, Kristen. We do have some questions. And uh, not to put you on the spot here, but I just found that picture with the two satellites, the then and now picture, to just be so striking. On the one side it looks like Dad and my uncle Bill working on the 56 Chevy and the other side, you know, is obviously the, the new millennium. Do you have any idea what the comparative cost between those two pieces of equipment are? You know, I don't. That is actually a very interesting question. Um, I suspect that that book that I, that I got that picture from probably talks about that, but I don't know. It was so. Um, I'm just, Shane is here in the studio with me. It was asking. It was the Tiro satellite, and uh, that was uh, one of the first uh, Earth-observing satellites. And and GPM. I mean, GPM over the course of the of building. And say, so I used to have right right around lunch. I had all these numbers memorized, and I don't know. I, th I I'm not sure, but I'm going to guess a lot less. And actually, another point of that that I find fascinating is you think about the size of that small satellite and then GPM and actually in some senses we're actually going back to building the smaller satellites, the CubeSats and the SmallSats, that, that because our technology has improved we are actually able to do a lot of the things that used to take this huge you know, structure of a satellite and now we're actually able to do some of those in a much smaller platform. We had a, another question uh, obviously when we look at that thing about the scarcity of usable water and how much of it is groundwater and how much of it is tied up in the oceans. Um, we had a question about will we ever be in danger of freshwater shortages? You know, I think that actually, so 
I, we're never going to completely run out of fresh water, but there are, of course, places that are experiencing fresh water shortages. I mean, it is, it is this, this continual cycle. So I think what you're seeing um, is the potential for shifts of you know, places that always got a lot of precipitation or maybe getting less and vice versa. So I, no, we're never going to run out of fresh water on the Earth because it is a closed system. It doesn't go away, but I think it does maybe end up in forms that are not as not as easy for us to get access to um, and I and I do think that it you know that, that that's you have to drill deeper wells for example to be able to get access to that fresh water or certain places that used to be good for agriculture are no longer good for agriculture so it's not going to go away but I think it certainly will could get harder to get to seeing as we're sitting about a quarter of a mile from Lake Michigan here at Hadley um, is there anything that this particular mission is could tell us about the Great Lakes and what's going on there? Well, certainly um, GPM can tell us about the, the precipitation patterns over the Great Lakes. I mean, we're not looking at the water in the lakes itself, but, uh, but there, there is data. The, the data that GPM collects is, is global and is, is at a resolution of about the, 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 the iMERGE product, which is kind of our, our gridded product that's the combination of GPM and some other satellites, um, is at 0.1 degree resolution. So you could certainly, if you were interested, in some of the patterns that GPM has, uh, in precipitation GPM has seen, uh, you could get that data for the region of the Great Lakes. I don't know of anything specific that, that I've seen about that. Um, I mean, I, I have to imagine there's some, there's probably some interesting data about, you know, some lake effect storms and things like that you, you could get from, from GPM data. Um, there was something else I was thinking of that I was going to mention. It'll come to me, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, you mentioned Japan working uh, closely with them. Is there, are there any other nations that are working on this sort of thing along with NASA or on, or on, on their own, like the European Union? Yeah, so um, in the terms of the GPM constellation, and I guess I don't, I didn't include a, an image of the GPM constellation, but um, for the GPM data that we collect, we have our one GPM satellite. But of course, a satellite looking down at Earth can only see one narrow swath. So in order to get the complete global picture that we want, we actually share data with other satellites. And so um, the GPM was built in partnership with, with JAXA. We actually get some data from other JAXA satellites. We also get data from satellites uh, that uh, there's one that's a collaboration between um, India and I believe the French Space Agency. There is a European, um, what is it called? I think it's UMETSAT maybe that we get data from. So yes, there are a lot of different countries that have satellites with similar instruments to what GPM has um, that then we have made agreements to share that data to be able to get the, the full global picture that we want. Um, and then, of course, those agencies also have their other own satellites that are doing different things. Um, so, and NASA has partnerships with other, uh, with other space agencies besides JAXA as well in terms of building some of the satellites. I know, for example, my, my office mate here at Goddard was uh, working on data, sea salinity data from Aquarius, which the satellite that was, um, that was, it was run out of Argentina, and I think it, I, I don't remember which space, it, oh, it, that might have been actually, a, I don't remember the a space agency now that it was a partnership, but I know it was a partnership. So yes, there are a lot of those international collaborations. Um, the truth is satellites are pretty expensive, at least these big ones like GPM, so you want to be able to, to share some of the costs of building and launching and running them. Speaking of sharing costs, um, is there any of this work being done by private corporations? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, and in terms of 
I mean, clearly there are private satellites up there. I don't know for sure if there are any satellites, private satellites that have um, instruments like GPM has. Uh, that's just not something I've, I've never looked into that. Um, I think one the, one of the things I mean, we do know that the, our data is available to anybody. So the truth is that a that a company trying to do their own weather forecasts or whatever whatever purpose they're using it for, um, they can freely access our data and use our data without having to build their own satellites. Now, there might be some things they would want to build their own satellites for, but I'm not aware of any that are doing exactly what GPM does. Somebody, uh, yeah, that's actually a good question I should ask. I bet some of the uh, scientists down the hall from me uh, uh, would actually know the answer to that. Excellent. Why don't we uh, continue on, and um, we've got some additional questions that have been submitted on to us, and uh, we'll deal with those later. Sounds good. Well, we can keep going. So, I mean, the whole idea, if you think about rain, I mean, it, it, it's something that we detect as human beings pretty easily. You can go out and see, you, you can even get a sense of, oh, this is light rain, this is heavy rain. Maybe you don't know how many inches are falling, but you have a sense of it as something that happens on the ground. And that is, of course, the classic way to measure rain is that you take, you know, some kind of cup, cylinder, whatever it is, you put it out in the rain and you periodically go out and look at how much rain fell into it. It's, it's a fairly simple and straightforward thing to do, you'd think. Uh, and of course, these days we also have um, you know, what the different types of rain gauges. I got what's called a tipping bucket rain gauge that has a little lever inside that when the rain falls on one side, it, you know, a certain amount of rain will cause the lever to trip, uh, hit an electric contact, and send a signal to a data collector saying, oh, 0.1 inches of rain fell. And then it'll fall on the other side and trip, oh, another 0.1 inches. So we have some electronic ways to measure rain on the ground. Uh, snow is actually kind of tricky to measure um, because uh, you, you usually think of snow as height, but if you don't measure the snow quickly enough after it falls, it can actually compress, and so you're going to get a different height measurement. Different snow has different water content, so just saying so one foot of snow in one place might actually have a different water content than uh, than uh, than a foot of snow somewhere else if it's a, if it's a drier snow or a wetter snow. So uh, this is something that we have been measuring from the ground in a lot of different ways for a long time, um, and it's something that that you think of as fairly simple and you start to realize is a little, little bit more complex. But of course, um, the other thing that's true is even when you have rain gauges on the ground, um, whether simple plastic cylinders or more complex electronic stations, uh, actually the coverage is not as much as you'd think. Um, so there's, a, there's an image here, and it actually has an animation that goes with it as well. But there's a scattered across the Earth, all these little yellow dots are places where we have rain gauges around the world. And it's not, it's a, you know, fairly dense in the United States and Europe, a lot less dense in parts of Asia and Africa and South America. You know, and of course, you know, there, there are some dots there in the ocean. Those are going to be islands, but, uh, but a vast part of the ocean has no rain gauges at all. Um, and so what we find is that we that even though we can measure precipitation from the ground, and we you know we've been improving our technology to do that for quite some time, it doesn't give us the full coverage that we need. Um, and so even you know so you might say, well, what about radar? Like I, I watch the news and they and they they have radar. Um, but the problem with radar is that although the U.S. has a pretty dense network, um, you can see in the in the eastern U.S. you even have a lot of overlap, so we have quite good coverage. But in the Mountain West, especially, uh, mountains can interfere with ground radar. We have gaps in coverage, and of course, we still have the oceans. Uh, radar still um, doesn't well. 
to go along the coastline, but is not going to extend out further deeper into the ocean. Uh, so what that means is that um, you know you really are missing a whole lot of information if you just try to look from the ground. And what that ends up meaning is that we need our uh, the precipitation information from space. And this uh, this animation again, that I, the, sorry, the Blackboard doesn't allow us to show these. But what this animation shows is this whole network of satellites that we have, each of which is looking down in it at its own little stripe of Earth. But then when we combine all those stripes together, we actually can see the global picture. And so with the the ten or so satellites that we combine. Um, data with, with GPM, uh, we can actually uh, get data from most places on Earth about every three hours. And they actually put out the product every half hour, so it's regularly updated, but what, what that, so they do some, some mathematical things to, to, um, to, to uh, I, oh, I think they call it interpolation and some things to fill in the gaps where we're not actually getting um, the, 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 the measured data, but what it results in is this really pretty good data set for almost the entire globe. And so what that means is we can have coverage in places where there are no rain gauges, where there are or few rain gauges, very remote areas where there's no to check a rain gauge or you wouldn't have you know, uh, electricity to power one or, any, or things like that. And, that, and because the, all these Earth systems are so interconnected, we really need that data from everywhere. And as I mentioned before, our data is available to anybody who wants to use it. So places that have, you know, in, in countries in, in Africa or South America or wherever that may not have their own very well-developed rain gauge network, they at least have access to, uh, to, to some data that they can use for their for their regions and it does get used in a lot of different places um, and you know you can imagine storms that are out in the middle of the ocean you want to be able to track the precipitation they are generating even when it's not over land and satellites are really the only way we can do that um, kind of an interesting side note I didn't I talk a little I talked about the Tiro satellite but there's actually a more direct predecessor to GPM that was called the tropical rainfall measuring mission. And that launched in uh, 1997, started collecting data. I think the first light was 1998, I believe. Uh, and it actually lasted until 2015. So it overlapped with GPM for about a year. Which uh, and and tr and trim was amazingly important in terms of improving the tracking of hurricanes. There there were some some studies the improvement of hurricane pred track prediction using satellite data or not using satellite data, and it's pretty dramatic how how much better our tracking got when we had satellite at hurricanes. And the other thing about TRIM was that it, it was tropical. It was meant to measure tropical rainfall. So uh, it didn't have uh, the, the, the full range. It went, I believe, it was about 35 north to south it could cover. Uh, whereas GPM, we can um, actually go, we get data from about the Arctic to the Antarctic. So we're getting a, a much increased range. And so things like, for example, Hurricane Sandy, um, uh, TRIM saw some of Sandy 
before, uh, when, when it was still a hurricane, before it actually made landfall, but its range wasn't high enough in latitude, so it couldn't actually get observations, direct observations of the storm after, uh, after it passed, you know, north of the latitude where Trim observed. So, you know, we're, we're, we're always trying to improve these, these instruments. We had, a, you know, the, the Trim satellite that lasted, what was that, 18 years, something like that, um, and then now we've got GPM that's been up there uh, just over three, three and a half, I guess. But what the plan is, and I think they're in process with this now, is to actually take the data from GPM and the data from TRIM and reprocess it so we have a continuous satellite record going back, you know, at this point, 20 years. But, but hopefully, you know, fingers crossed that GPM so far is working great that we can keep it up there um, for, you know, another 20 years and then we'll have this even longer record. And that's really important for people who are doing, uh, like, long-term looking at climate, because you really don't want to talk about anything climate related until you've got 20 30 or 30 years of data. And of course, we have ground precipitation data going back that long, but we don't have the, the satellite record um, quite going, going back quite that far yet. So we're, we're, we're working on that, you know, with time. Um, so this is an example, this image, and this is one I think I pulled last week when I, um, when, I, when I put these slides together, but you can actually get this near real-time precipitation data uh, from this, the link on this website. So they, again, like I said, they produce it, they, they put it out every, updated every half hour, and it shows the last week's worth of data. Um, and it looks great in an animation because you actually see the storms moving, and you can see, you know, the winds, the, 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 what latitudes the winds move west to east and what latitudes they move east to west and it's and th so this data is accessible in this visual format but then of course it is also accessible in you know the, the data files that somebody who wanted to do weather predictions or are looking at agricultural forecasting or other, other sorts of things um, it's also available in a format that they can they can use in their software and do some some predictions so I mentioned uh, previously that the two instruments that GPM has, um, it has kind of these boxes on the bottom that are the precipitation radars, two different frequencies, KU and KA, and that, those are the ones that actually send down microwaves and then they bounce off the, the droplets in the, in the storm and bounce back to the satellite and based on the time it takes to, to, to travel back you know, down and back up. We can tell where in the storm the droplet is. We can tell, at, you know, based on some of the qualities of the signal and how it goes and returns. Um, we can actually tell whether that it's liquid or frozen, what size the droplet, whether it's liquid or solid, you know, an a ice particle or, or a rain particle. We can tell a whole lot about the structure of the storm and actually what they call like the microphysics of precipitation by using this active system. But then there's also this, and that, but that has a fairly narrow swath, and, and GPM is the only precipitation radar up there. TRIM also had one with just one frequency, so this is an improvement with our two frequencies. But, um, but it's the only one up there, so you just have to kind of get lucky um, to get, get over the storm you want to look at at the right time to be able to get that kind of data. Um, and I do believe we have some, some coverage of, of Harvey um, as well, uh, th that we have some overpasses of Harvey at various points. The other instrument is this passive instrument that has a much wider swath, and that's the one that we use to make that global rain picture. So um, that's, there, there are similar instruments in this passive microwave imager um, that, is, that, that we can combine with the, other, with the data from these other you know, 10 or so international satellites that actually allows us to get that global, that global picture of rainfall. So yeah, so uh, let's go ahead, Larry, we've got some more questions.
We have a number of questions, um, several of them sort of dealing all around with Hurricane Harvey, and uh, one of them was, what role did NASA have in predicting the extent of Harvey's devastation? Well, so so at NASA we do the research, but then we that 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 we don't do predictions in terms of that sort of thing. That's the responsibility of NOAA and the National Weather Service and the National Hurricane um, Center. So so NASA doesn't do predictions like that. But our data gets used for the predictions that other people make. So that's that's kind of our role is to collect the data and share it with the people who are actually making those predictions and decisions, and 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 then ultimately organizations like FEMA that actually have to respond to those to, to those uh, disasters. Somebody submitted a question which is right on target. They said it always seems like weather forecasts are not that great. Why is it so hard to get that right? Well. So I think the truth is that they, 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 it's all relative, <laughs> and so they, they are a whole lot better than they used to be. I think the, the, the short answer to that is, is that the, the weather system is very complicated, that, that it's only been fairly recently that we've had the computing power to even you know, model most of the variables that we need to model to make a prediction. But even though it seems like they're not very accurate, if you were living a hundred years ago, like they, 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 they were, they, we are getting better. So even though it doesn't seem like it, we are actually getting better at, at our, our predictions as we get better data, better computers for modeling and things like that. But it, it is just a very complex system. Um, and I think we just don't understand all of the parts in the system, and even when we do understand them, that doesn't necessarily mean we have a way we can put that in a computer model that, that works the same way as reality does. So, well, we're, we'll keep getting better. Um, I think uh, it's still always a good idea to have an umbrella just in case, but... Very true. Uh, does NASA see any patterns occurring with recent weather events? Uh, the questioner says it seems like we're experiencing more extreme events and wonders what that might indicate. Well, I think that is one of the things that, that scientists at NASA are definitely looking at is these more extreme events. That's one of the, the possible outcomes of a warming world is that we, we have shifts in, where, the, um, in where, where storms are happening and how intense the storms are. I, truthfully, I don't know that we have enough data to say anything definitively about that. But, uh, but that is one of the things that I know people are paying attention to. You know, as the temperature on Earth rises overall, does that mean we have more of these intense hurricanes and stronger storms? But I don't think we have a definitive answer yet. Great. Well, I've got some additional questions that we can do near the end. So um, if you'd like, we can continue on. So um, this is kind of an example of a, of a, a typhoon like we, that... Um, what we're showing here, and again, this is an animation that if you if you go later and look at the link, it, it actually goes around the storm. But it's just showing again we have these two different the the ability to get this flat image of like total precipitation in a storm, but then also the vertical structure, which is something that's that's really important for storms. One of the things they look for in storms, um, which I was just talking to a colleague, I haven't looked at the most recent Harvey ones, but I think maybe they saw in Harvey, was what they call hot towers. And this is something you can see sometimes in the structure of hurricanes, and there are areas where there's a lot of convection uh, happening, that you're seeing a lot of that heat and moisture rising up in the storm and making the storm more powerful. So um, I mentioned earlier, we, we have gotten a lot better at, at predicting the track of hurricanes. No, it's still not completely perfect, but it's, it's again, it's a lot better. 
what we're still not quite as good at and what we don't understand quite as well is when storms will get stronger. And hot towers is one of the things we're looking at that may be an indicator of uh, storms getting stronger. I will say, though, in terms of, of history, and if you want, if you're, there, there are a couple of really fascinating books about historic storms. Uh, there's one called Isaac Storm that's about the Gal in 1900 that I think is still the, the deadliest hurricane that ever has hit the United States and they really did not have a sense of that it was I mean this was this was we had um, you know telegraph at that point but that that was there was really just not a good way to get forecasts um, out quickly um, that were very accurate at all. And then there's also, there was a big storm in the 19, late 1930s that hit New England that um, I'm not remembering the title of that book, but there's, if you're, there, there are some great books about historic meteorology uh, and hurricanes and that for that, that question about being able to do weather forecasts and predictions, and that, that will really prove to you that we are getting a whole lot better. Um, one of the neat things about GPM is actually that not only can we see rainfall, we can actually see uh, snow as well. And that's something that TRIM was not designed to do because it was intended to look at the tropics. But of course, now we're expanding our range uh, and, and there is snow, you know, at the higher latitudes. We want in order, again, it's all about getting the most data, the complete picture. So if we're just looking at liquid droplets, we're still not getting the complete picture. So one of the things that GPM does is it's actually has expanded its, um, expanded its range of frequencies that it looks at to be able to uh, see uh, snowfall as well as rainfall. So what you're seeing in this image in, in the right hand side, uh, the bottom part is showing reds and greens and yellows, that's showing rainfall. And there's a very distinct dividing line where below that it's liquid and above it's frozen. And the blues and greens are actually frozen precipitation. So you know, up high in the cloud, it hasn't fallen yet, but they're, they're frozen particles up high in the cloud. But then at the left, you can actually see that if it's a snowstorm, then actually those frozen particles extend all the way to the ground. So this is one of the neat things that GPM can do is, is tell us total precipitation, but also whether that precipitation was liquid or frozen. And that makes a pretty big difference um, in terms of the, the results of a storm. I know in the, in the DC area, it, it, that's always kind of the, like the, the, the storms that are at the, the borderline that maybe in the, in the fall or in the spring when it's, the temperatures are just hovering right around freezing and where that, <laughs> where the line is where places are going to get snow and where places are just going to get rain is something that, that those of us in the, in the DC area pay a great deal of attention to. Um, <laughs> in terms of what the impact is going to have on us. So, you know, as I, we've talked about, you know, NASA collects a lot of data, we study things, we do research, but we are also certainly interested in the societal benefits that our research can have. And so these are some of the things we've talked about. A few of these, um, you know, floods and tropical cyclone, so cyclones, hurricanes are kind of this extreme events and disasters category. Um, we can also, our data is used for, um, for modeling landslides. You know, another big, big uh, uh, impact uh, in, you can have landslides in, in any, anywhere in the world, although of course there are, you know, steep slopes but uh, that are going to be more prone to landslides. But precipitation-triggered landslides are, um, are, are, I think, the, 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 the biggest category of landslides. So if you have some of the data about soil moisture and soil type and slope, and then you see that these areas that are prone to landslides suddenly got a whole bunch of rain, then you might, again, feel like, OK, that's, we need to pay attention. We need to monitor whether there are going to be landslides. Um, 
of course, you know, agriculture, drought, um, water resource management, um, famine early warning system is a, is a program that, that uses trim data and is starting to use GPM data. So just knowing where the water is and how that's going to affect agriculture and food, um, the availability of food. Um, Weather, climate, and land surface modeling. We talked about weather prediction, um, which uh, and and modeling to try to get better at making predictions. And one way is to improve our data. Um, that's true for weather and climate. Uh, again, you we, you know you really want longer term data for for climate. So we're just kind of getting there with our trim and GPM data. Um, but but you know going forward, we definitely want this long record of what's what's. Um, happening over time. And then one of the kind of interesting ones uh, with, with public health and ecology is the idea that you can actually use this data for disease tracking um, and uh, some waterborne diseases uh, or, or you know disease vectors like mosquitoes that are that like moist areas where, where for their habitat, you can actually use satellite data for precipitation and combine it with things like surface temperature or vegetation type um, and actually do some predictions about, uh, about where you might have disease outbreaks. So this data, you know, once we collect it, can be used for, for many different beneficial uh, areas and that's I think something that's really important. Um, this is, so this is uh, an example from the um, the National Research Lab, the Naval Na uh, Research Lab that is looking at tracking tropical cyclones. And um, you, you, I mean, you've, you probably are familiar with the idea of like the, the prediction cone for the, for the tracking of where hurricanes are going to go. And satellites are really the, the, the best way to get early data when the storms are still out over the ocean so that we can monitor what they're doing uh, at, you know, as they start to make landfall and start, uh, start being more likely to impact people. Um, this, is, these are, this is an example of, some, uh, of a storm from October of 2015 that was a great deal of rainfall that hit South Carolina. And so kind of the upper right image is actually showing some of the, the flooding that uh, was, was predicted. And again, so you know, NASA is not doing the predictions, but we are providing data to people who can use that to do predictions. Um, and so that's you know, part of making that accessible as part of our mission. Hurricane Matthew, uh, you know, another big storm. We actually have some really fascinating data uh, uh, looking at different aspects of Hurricane Matthew. Um, and again, the idea of being able to get the structure of a storm as well as the track of the storm, both things are very important. Uh, you, some another flooding example. You know, if you track rainfall, you can you can try to start to look downstream and see you know, how much how much rain you're getting going to get downstream. So this is an example from the Mekong Delta, looking at some some rainfall there. I don't remember what the date is on this one, to be perfectly honest. Um, and so there actually so there's some 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 kind of interesting very small applications of using this data because it is readily accessible. So this example is uh, actually a a a, a researcher a project that um, put together a, an app to uh, have farmers be able to access the the GPM iMerge data uh, to know whether they like when they should water their crops. Um, and so there's there's these 10,000 farmers in the Indus Basin. Get information on water resources in their area through their cell phones, and it's using you know NASA data to to deliver that information to to people. So you know it's 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 large 
agencies like National Weather Service, FEMA, but it also can get down to, you know, an individual farmer checking to see whether they, they need to irrigate their crops this week or not. Uh, the famine early warning system I mentioned, so the idea of that is you can look at some of these longer trends um, in different areas. This is an example from Africa looking at soil moisture, uh, but you could also, you would add in precipitation uh, that and you can see areas in this case, um, the, the scale is a little bit hard to read on this size slide, but um, it looks like um, the, the red is going to be lower uh, soil moisture and the green is going to be higher soil moisture, so areas where there's low soil moisture and then you're not getting precipitation coming soon, you might be, need to worry about whether you need to try to get some irrigation or make sure you have food resources if crops fail, things like that. Um, so here, this is this is cholera risk prediction after Hurricane Matthew. So again, this is one of those things you would not necessarily expect satellites to be useful uh, for 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 some of these features, but because cholera is you know found in, in water sources and, uh, and unclean water sources and after a storm you can have a lot of flooding which can inundate water treatment systems so you can actually use some of this section data um, to be able to know where which places after a disaster are at risk of things like cholera. There's also an interesting uh, another example that I don't have a slide for, but uh, there's a snail-borne disease called schistosomiasis, and these snails like get uh, like to come out when you know fields get wet and standing water, and um, then you know if people are walking barefoot in the fields, then the disease is transmitted uh, the snail through from the snails to the people, and you can actually use satellite uh, precipitation data in the places that are prone to this. That if you see you know certain patterns of precipitation, you know that after whatever I don't know what the, the incubation period is, but after a certain amount of time, you might expect to see cases of this snail-borne disease in clinics, and so you can be prepared for it. Um, this, is, this, is, this, this slide is showing, you know, th th looking at lots of different factors. So the, the truth is, again, it all comes back to this idea that everything is interconnected. So if you have, uh, you, 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 you don't want just precipitation data, you also probably want soil moisture, and maybe you want so, uh, surface temperature, and you want air temperature, and you might need to know vegetation because certain diseases are going to, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's dry ground versus, you know, a forested or, or a rainforested area. So really by having all of these different data sets and by looking at them in different ways, we can do some pretty amazing things uh, in terms of benefiting people and warning about diseases, droughts, floods, landslides, all these sorts of things. And, and the goal, of course, is to, is to make sure that people stay safe um, from, from whatever the, 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 the disaster or the impact is going to be. And so this final slide, there's where our, uh, our GPM main website, gpm.nasa.gov. We also have pretty active um, uh, Facebook and Twitter. And so especially if you're interested in uh, our, our, our webmaster and social media guy is, is very good about getting like the latest visualizations, especially things like you know, as they're coming up uh, topically, for, exa excuse me, for example, Hurricane Harvey, all those are going to be shared out through our, our social media as well. So you can follow that there. And I think that's, that's my last slide, so we've got, what, 15 more minutes for whatever questions I can try to answer. Fantastic. Well, having we just talked about this, what does that global disease early warning system, is there any predictions regarding Harvey? I do not know if there have been, if there's been time to do any of those predictions about Harvey yet. Um, I have not seen any. Um, I'm sure that that is something that, that uh, they, they, they will be working on, but I have not seen any particular predictions. I think one of the, I mean, that, that 
it, I think that's always a risk when you have, I mean, seeing those pictures out of Houston, and I'm sure that their, you know, sewage treatment plants and, and, and water treatment plants are, if they're even still functioning, are, are have a huge task uh, ahead of them. So we'll just have to see, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, we'll just have to see, I think. I know that somebody out there right now is saying, what's the difference between a typhoon and a hurricane? Ah, so um, they're all tropical cyclones. It's all about what ocean basin they form in. So hurricanes form in the Atlantic, and so that's what we hear about most in the United States. Uh, typhoons are going to be in the Pacific, and so, you know, for example, Typhoon Hegapete that I showed a picture of earlier was, was uh, uh, I think, affected Japan and some, some islands over in that area. So there is, the, the only difference is the ocean they are formed in. They are all actually, the scientific term is actually tropical cyclones. Um, rather than typhoon or hurricane. We just, human beings like to name things differently. I don't know. <laughs> Here's a question. What does uh, NASA's funding look like for the near term? Are you all look like you're in good shape or facing cutbacks or just uh, any feel for that? Uh, yeah, that's that's a question that's 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 above my pay grade, I'm afraid. I think that the, the, the news sources and and and, uh, and Congress are going to be better, you know. That that's all up to them. So I don't, I, I don't think I can, I don't think I can answer that, unfortunately. But certainly, we are all paying attention to, uh, to what happens next. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot again. Are there okay. any exciting new developments at NASA that you can share with our audience? Oh, exciting new developments. Well, I, I can't say so. The other project that I don't know if this if this qualifies as what you're thinking about, but one of the other project that I work on besides GPM is this Globe Observer project, and we just did a big push for da data collection during the eclipse. And so maybe it's not something new in the sense of you know gr groundbreaking. I you know we basically knew, for example, the temperature will drop a certain amount and things like that. But what is exciting, at least to me, was that we got we got 10,000 observers all across. Across, um, not just the path of totality, but but even areas that were only getting a partial eclipse, we had 18,000 clouds observations. So looking at cloud cover, cloud type, and taking pictures of clouds, and we got 76,000 air temperature measurements, um, all, all on Monday, August 21st. So I don't know if that qualifies as something new and exciting, uh, you know, for your definition, but I was certainly very excited by that. I know we we, uh, we had a lot of interest in the eclipse seminar, so. Um, yeah. Really excited to uh, be involved with that. Well, it was my first time. I went. I went out to Nebraska and, and supported an event at Homestead National Monument out in Nebraska, and it was it was amazing. I that was the first time I'd ever seen a total solar eclipse, and I was I, I it was it was awesome. I loved being in this crowd of people that were all gathered together for a science event like that. Was just for 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 me as both someone who works at NASA but also as a former science teacher. Uh, I just loved that. Oh, that had to be incredible. Yeah, I, it, it, was a, it wasn't all that it could have been up here. We weren't in the uh, zone of totality, but uh, people that went down to Carbondale, Illinois, I know they sp spoke very highly and very emotionally about the uh, entire experience. I think that's all we have for questions, so um, we can begin our wrap-up. And I want to let everyone know that this webinar, like all of our webinars, will be archived on our website and available for your use anytime around the clock. Also, each Hadley webinar is made available as a podcast, which you can download to your computer or mobile device. If today's webinar has you interested in this or related Earth science topics, please check out our Earth and Space Science course and, of course, the webinar archives. 
In addition, if you have not listened to the Eclipse webinar, do not delay. Register and listen to that right away. You will not regret it, I assure you. Kristen and I both thank you for your participation. Your questions were, as always, outstanding and added to the value of the seminar. Hadley values your feedback. Please let us know what you thought about today's webinar and please give us suggestions for future topics. You can do that by dropping us an email to feedback at hadley.edu. That's F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, the at sign, H-A-D-L-E-Y dot E-D-U. I'm going to flip the microphone back over to Kristen for a minute and ask her if she'd like to make any closing comments. No, I just thank you all for, for, for tuning in today. I, I, you know, I get excited about the, the science that I have to share, and I hope that, that you also found it interesting. And yeah, to check out GPM. We've got lots of, uh, lots of great information. Um, and uh, like I said, up-to-date up things, the latest data you can find on our website. So I encourage you to check that out. Thank you, Kristen. I really appreciate it. This was, uh, this was outstanding. And uh, I'd like to take a great deal of credit for the timeliness of it, but I really can't do that. Things just sort of happened that way, but uh, couldn't have been a better time to do this particular webinar. And I want to personally thank you and personally thank everyone who listens for taking the time to be part of this. And watch your email for notice on the third in the NASA series, which will be upcoming soon. Again, thank you. And until we speak again, goodbye for now. <laughs>